0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the She Can, She Did podcast, aka the podcast in which I, Fiona Grayson, sit down with female founders dotted all over the UK, usually over a giant cup of coffee, but of course on Zoom for the foreseeable future, and ask them to open up to me about absolutely everything they've been through, the good, the bad, and the more often than not, unbelievably challenging to get their businesses to where they are today. The overarching aim being that She Can, She Did encourage Encourages as many current female founders to persevere by highlighting that setbacks en route are 100% normal, but also to encourage as many aspiring business owners that launching a business is possible no matter what age you are, but only if you're willing to grit your teeth, accept that it's not always going to be as glamorous as it sometimes seems on Instagram, and work seriously hard. Now, before we get going on this week's episode, in which I got to chat to the unstoppable force that is Emma Watkinson, co founder and CEO of Silk Fred. Those of you that listen regularly will know that this podcast is sponsored by Tide Business Current Accounts, aka the business current account dedicated to over 200,000 startups, founders, and freelancers that I've been banking with ever since I switched over to being a limited company at the end of 2018. But I also wanted to let you know that they also happen to be the only place in the UK where you can register a limited company and open a business account account in one process for free. Now no one likes a sales pitch do they so I will keep this short and sweet but it's a service which I so wish had been available back in 2018 because it definitely would have streamlined the whole process for me and Tide cover the £12 company's house incorporation fee too so you can start your business journey as a limited company with Tide for free. Essentially, for those of you that want to set up as a limited company, or switch from being a sole trader to a limited company like I did, all you do is search the company name you'd like, so I would have put in she can, she did limited, enter your personal and business details, and in a matter of minutes, your limited company application will be sent, your tied business current account will be set up, and you are good to go. It's worth noting as well that Tide have no monthly fees and they have all the fancy perks you could want and need from a business account, including account integrations, easy invoicing, scheduled payments, member perks, etc. etc. They really are pretty amazing. So please do feel free to have a peek at www.tide.co forward slash start if you're interested. The link is, of course, in the episode show notes if you didn't manage to jot that down. Right, back to this episode. As the We Can, We Will series came to an end back in May, I received a personal email from today's guest sharing her story with me and knew straight away that I wanted her to feature on this series. Not just because Emma launched the powerhouse that is Silk Fred aged 24 nine and a half years ago and together with her two co-founders has gone on to grow a team of over 100 employees, partnered with over 800 independent fashion labels and grown a dedicated customer base of over 1 million women. But because despite being at the helm of such a huge company juggling the pressures of running an online fashion business during this pandemic whilst raising two-year-old twins at home I must add what an absolute superhero Emma made the effort to reach out to me personally something that is pretty much unheard of for a founder running a company of her size and something that little old me respected no end. We recorded this episode at the start of June and it quickly became a firm favourite so without further ado this is Emma's story to date as always I really hope you enjoy it I mean Emma I was having a a look on the website beforehand and um there's there's a statement I just wanted to read out and you said Silk Fred was founded on likes comments and conversations with our customers on social media and you describe it as an ecosystem and so I guess to kick off In your own words, what is Silk Fred and what inspired this way back when? Talk me through it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So Silk Fred is a fashion e-commerce company um, that offers women the most exciting mix of fashion that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, We connect um, over 800 independent fashion brands, startup fashion brands uh with over a million women we've got a million customers now which is really exciting um who love to discover outfits that make them stand out from the crowd so we launched uh in 2012 and it took us until late 2013 to really find our product market fit and we've been on a rocket ship ever since and when you talk about the ecosystem you know Silk Fred is a we have our community of brands who are entrepreneurs just like us and you know they they really were the inspiration to start you know the whole thing like um, I co-founded Silk Fred in 2011 with my co-founders Kate and Stephen and really what we saw was an opportunity where there were lots of exciting um fashion brands and people wanting to create their own fashion brands but the barriers to entry in the industry uh, were just so high and we thought that what they were doing was way more interesting um than the high street so we wanted to create an ecosystem to bring those brands to market and also connect them with customers who and this will be something this is something that i, I think about a lot who like clothes and how clothes make them feel but maybe don't love fashion so you know that that was a big that was a big reason for wanting to start silk Fred was to help these brands get to market and also to help customers discover things that were unique and interesting but in a very um unintimidating um and fun fun way no that's amazing so what were you doing beforehand So I was working on the merchandising team of an e-commerce company called MyWardrobe.com. It was a great company, it was all about accessible luxury and I just loved the concept. I wasn't there for very long, Um, it was my dream job at a company that I dreamed about working at and out of nowhere the opportunity um, to start Silk Fred came along, but before that most of my experience was on the shop floor. Like I loved interacting with customers, like talking to them, like making them feel comfortable special and again like as I said I like clothes like you know the feeling of like when you have that new dress on and you just just put spring in your step and maybe even like sashay down the street a little bit it's so true though, <laughs> because you actually do. Like, there's nothing better than when you know that you're wearing a comp- like an outfit that
0: you you feel amazing in I mean I, I don't know what was wrong with me a few days ago I just wanted to go out for a walk and everything I put on and it's so not like me I just felt rubbish and I was like oh this feeling is horrible and there's such it's so amazing when you do feel good, isn't it? I guess for my um what what was interesting to me though is you said 2011 2012 So this is pre-Instagram. Yes. Which is in my opinion like the fact that you cottoned onto this even before Instagram. That's amazing. So back then, what were those barriers to entry that startup fashion brands were facing?
1: Yeah so um I worked in New York for a bit before I came to London to work um at mywardrobe.com and you started. I started to see there how social media and this is interesting like Twitter was the go-to platform for fashion brands back then and was giving people a way to reach an audience like the first wave bloggers were just starting to get famous like Elon Kling, um, Blonde Salad and Mam Rapella. and I just thought this was really really exciting like I, I went to my first fashion week in New York and there were these like big Twitter boards outside the tents and people were live tweeting the runway looks and you know fashion has always been notoriously difficult to break into, especially for those who want to create their own brands. And it just felt like something was starting to shift, like it was becoming less relevant to be well connected and, you know, have lots of money to get into it. And this was a good thing, you know, for young designers coming to market, because it felt like the playing field was going to level out and it wasn't level then, but it felt like it was going in that direction. And around the same time as social, you know, people started to use Twitter and blogging was starting to um, take off. Like I just became obsessed with e-commerce and just like social media, like this was a, you know, e-commerce was an opportunity for a startup fashion brand to get to market. But the infrastructure, you know, like logistics and tech and marketing and oh my God, the cost of marketing, um, photography and customer experience is a barrier to a lot of people who want to sell online. So this was one of the reasons for wanting to start Silk Fred. But, you know, very traditionally, the only routes to market were having your own boutique, which is, you know, obviously a huge, huge um, cost and risk, Mm. or, you know, hoping and praying that a buyer, a big retailer would um, stock you someday. And even then, you know, it takes years and years for them to, you know, for you to build their trust. Maybe you have to sell to them at a really low margin. Maybe you even lose money the first couple of collections that you do. So, you know, back then it was... uh It was a completely different landscape and and also something else that was a driver for wanting to start Silk Red. And this was something that was quite personal to me was that, you know, how I said that I don't love fashion, but I just felt like high end retailers and high end magazines were just super condescending and talked in like this fashion language that didn't really mean anything to someone like me who just wanted a nice dress. Mm. Um, and then the high street on the other side of it didn't really have much of a voice or a brand. Like, I always felt like you could walk down Oxford Circus, rip off all the branding from every store and not know which one you were in. And, yeah, you know, one of the... What we wanted to do with Stoke Fred was create something that was women um, speaking to women and not sold this, you know, over-sexed-up image of a skinny 16-year-old. yeah and show a little bit of behind the scenes of what it looks like to run a fashion company and also just have fun with it. You know, fashion can be an industry that just takes itself so seriously and I, I never understood why. And you always think of that, like Devil Wears Prada scene about the belt being so important. And, you know, I'm on... Oh, and, it's such a good film though. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, to- I'm totally on the si- side of Andy. Like, it is just a belt. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so you know, true. And We've done stuff like we've had Chicken Nugget Instagram competitions on Instagram. We dressed everybody in the office in a best-selling shirt, men included, for an Instagram story. Uh, we did this campaign about bloat-friendly dresses. You know, because like when you go to a wedding, you don't look the same in the morning as you do in the evening. And yeah, you the dress that's got to handle all that prosecco and champagne and food. Um, and that was one of my favourites. So you yeah, have fun with it. yeah Yeah. well yeah and one of our you know one of our even like gives me shivers and I get quite emotional even talking about it now was we had this customer who posted this um mirror selfie and it was her breastfeeding um her baby in a dress that she bought from silk Fred from one of our brands and uh the caption was like mama still got it
0: I love that
1: yeah, and, and and that was so that was so great. And then we decided to reach out to other mums in our database and say, "Hey, will you road test some non maternity maternity dresses and postpartum dresses for us?" And what women started to say was, "Look, we don't want a specially designed maternity collection. Like, we don't want to feel like we're just in jersey tops. Like, we want to feel like yeah, exactly. We want to feel like ourselves and." so we started to put together like more options that were suitable for breastfeeding friendly dresses and and it and, it, and it, you know and this kind of content i think is what has really defined um silk thread as a as a brand and it's and a brand in its own right i did a video a couple of weeks ago on the request of the marketing team it's actually take my hat off to them it's quite hard work to create this content <laughs> <laughs> and it was styling tips on how to dress a mum tam. and uh, it's one of our most requested videos and i think you know, this idea that, you know, we don't take ourselves too seriously. And we speak to women how they want to be spoken to, perhaps not about, you know, pushing that you must look like this. And this is what you're going to aspire to be, which is typically how fashion companies have presented themselves to women. I'm really proud of that.
0: No, so you should be. And I think it's like it's the, the success of Silk Fred now is just a testament to like the fact that, you know, I'm I'm really not downplaying the fact that if you launched back then it's so so easy I think now to have a kind of blueprint of what kind of challenger brands how they if they're successful but like back then that really is unique you know going back you did say it wasn't until 2013 that you found that niche so for me with she can she did I always think it's so easy to look at a brand like Silk Fred, and look at you as a founder and think, God, she's, she's smashing it, you know, and so many women, I'm sure, will be like, oh, Emma's so lucky. And I just feel like, let's go back. If there was that year of really trying and testing, what were those baby steps to get this? You know, the idea comes into your head. What were the baby steps to get the business off the ground and tweak it to the extent that a year later... It took off
1: yeah so a big part of firstly a big part of the a big amount of our energy went into building the technology platform because what we wanted it to be was a place where you know the brands could control their inventory control their imagery and really run their businesses off it so if you think of that Shopify lets you create your own Uh, website we wanted them to almost create um a shop within our shop and then we would just be driving all the traffic to that one place so it gave them all the independence um of running their own business and building their own business on the platform. So we wanted it to be completely self-service. And also we've been, um, you know, from the start, a very data-driven business, which I've also loved about as, you know, having, bucking conventional wisdom and, you know, forgetting what is trendy and what fashion magazines are writing about. And like, no, but like, look, the data says that the customer likes this thing. So let's do that. So, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to build the tech in a way that, you know, would really scale alongside our ambitions. So we spent a good amount of time doing that. The, the way that the industry was then was that the brands that were mainly trying to be their own brands were sort of coming out of fashion school and you know, exhibiting at Fashion Week and trying to get picked up by Netta Porter and Selfridges and Harvey Nicks and all those guys. And what they really struggled with was that the the cost of their production was so high. And, you know, they were really trying to be like the next Alexander McQueens. And that was their ambition. And what we found was that working with those brands in that way whose goal was to get to wholesale and their goal was to be, you know, this big creative force, it didn't really map with our ambition, which was really just to reach customers and make them feel good and Um, Sell as much as as possible. So we were trying and testing lots of different things. You know, we tried to do pop up shops, we tried to um, run concessions within other people's boutiques. Um, We tried to build um, websites for other brands, like anything, you know, we realized there were all these challenges for a brand. And really, we tried to solve all of them all at the same time. Mm. And um, it was really when we took a, we, we did a crowdfunding round during 2013, which I'll happily talk about if you want me to, it, <laughs> pretty, it was pretty hard going. And, uh, you know, it was really during that time that we were like, right, well, what really matters? Like, what, what is more important than anything else? And really, it just came down to what these brands need is they need to be able to build a business that is robust, that can grow. And what that means is they need to sell. That's it. It doesn't matter if they're in vogue. It doesn't matter if they get a season in Selfridges. Like, what is important is that they get exposure to as many customers as possible. And then also we sort of look back at, you know, what, what was, you know, what were the kind of things that, you know, we wanted to see um, in terms of options. So we started to, we actually started to go back a little bit and work with brands who sold on physical marketplaces like Brick Lane and Portobello Road Market. And what was so great with these brands is not only were they at a much friendlier price point, but they were, they were so much more interested in the commercial appeal of running a fashion brand than necessarily being written about in vogue Mm. and that to us felt like the right fit you know what they wanted more than anything was to be able to see someone walking down the street in something they'd designed and that was what drove them and that was what drove us so when we started to work with brands that were in line with our mission and our values and also creating products that you know we wanted to buy ourselves that was when we started to feel like we were really, you know, we were really onto something.
0: I think that's such an interesting point because I just observing businesses sometimes. I do feel like it is that it's twofold. You have some people like those Brick Lane, you know, the people that are willing to go out on the market and sell and they want their business to take off, I guess, for the right reasons. And then I sometimes worry that there's others that are in it for those titles. And not necessarily, you know they want to say that they are in the likes of or that they've been awarded a certain award or something. And yet you kind of look at the fundamentals of business, and it's it, i I kind of always am rooting for those. the the brick lane ones you know does that make sense it's it's so easy to kind of get caught up in I suppose the glamour of I say in inverted commas of running a business actually the ones that tend to do well are the ones where it's genuine passion and they're in it for the right reasons does that make sense?
1: No it totally does and I remember talking to one of our brands um, a couple of years ago and they were saying you know "I I used to dream of this you know really cool office where you know we were sort of swanning around Around in like kimonos, and it was all like cool. Whereas actually, the reality is, it's like dusty boxes and hangers everywhere, and samples everywhere. Like it looks like a teenage girl's bedroom. Our office does too. Like it's just a mess all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always want when people to walk in, it looks like that opening scene of like the intern movie. I mean, we've got a great office. Like I love it, but it's um, you know, it, it's
0: it, a reality, it, though, isn't it? And I just feel like
1: it's not as glamorous. And you know, there's nothing wrong with loving fashion, you know, there's nothing wrong with loving fashion. But when we interview people um, for jobs at Silk Fred, and you say, you know, why do you want to do this? And they say, because I love fashion, like you just know that they're going to hate it. Because mm-hmm. it is unglamorous, it is really hard work. And actually, what you have to love is, you have to love the customer, you have to be passionate about the product. And you have to love the the dynamics of the business, you know, that has to be the thing that, drives you and actually I think one of the things that has differentiated Silk Fred from its peers is that not only are we team made up of 80% women, which is something we're really proud of, but we're also a lot of people come from many different industries that are not fashion, but people who are interested in data, customers, great web design and things like that. You know, so people who are motivated by lots of different things other than just, oh, that dress is like really like stylish or cool, you know. So and I and I and I think that's good because it's kept us honest. You know, like we try and we try and remove a lot of the subjectivity out of silk thread and be as close to the customer as possible. Like, you know, you, there's like in the early days, there were often debates like, well, that's a really, really strong image and say, but why? What makes it strong? Let's test it. And sometimes you'd be surprised, you know, with with what works. You know, if, if we had, let's call it a traditional fashion editor. Making like the decisions on the website, you know, our website might look really cool and polished to someone who follows fashion, but maybe it wouldn't resonate so well with the customer. Mm. Um, they're often at odds. I remember when we were first trying to get press, and some of our bestsellers were like, you know, just very flattering black dresses. But yeah, the, the the journalists always wanted to put like, you know, something that was really like outlandish on the page. I'm like, yeah, but it's only sold like two. So. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there was always there, there always did seem to be a disconnect between um between let's call it conventional industry wisdom and what the customer wanted yeah. but that's a bit so fun as well and that's why it's so exciting to be um you know working at an e-commerce company because You know, the things that surprise you. And it's always great to be surprised because it it keeps you humble. Mm, Absolutely.
0: And it's interesting because it's something that I always want to touch upon. It's like, you know, it sounds by the sounds of it from day one, you've been you have been pushing back against convention. But when you do launch a business there, it's such a vulnerable place to be in those early days. And a lot of people will be, you know, there's a lot of eyes on you, or at least I I've felt that that, and you know, some of the women that I've spoken to, they, you know, colleagues are watching, friends are watching, family are watching. Given that you are so used to kind of pushing back, how did you kind of handle that pressure, especially in that first year when there was so much trial and error and it didn't take off, you know, it, it wasn't you know not to sixty straight away. And how have you, I guess, handled the pressures? ever since as you're scaling because you know running a business comes with so many challenges it's not a case of launching and great you know we're off
1: it's uh it's interesting because that, that 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 feeling vulnerable never goes away and um as I was looking at your notes that you sent over early and I was just you know it, it's quite interesting to think back but you know, you always think that when you get to the next milestone or get that tech feature out the door or get to that team size number or get the perfect office that everything will feel smooth if I can just get to. And it never does. Like, it, you know, it, it never does. Um, so anyone who's at the start or midway point through their journey and people who I've spoken to who have gone way further with their businesses than I've gone and people who, you know, I, I look up to as mentors you know, they still feel that way too. And I guess it's maybe that vulnerability that always pushes you through to, you know, wants to do um, more and more and greater and greater things. In terms of, you know, feeling like uh, the eyes are on you, I remember the most most acutely I felt that was during our crowdfunding campaign. Mm. Because, you know, the the way that um, our crowdfunding campaign worked, it, it was equity crowdfunding. And the rule is, Uh, If you don't get 100%, you get zero. So even if you- Honestly, so was it Crowdcube? It was Crowdcube, yeah. And I remember feeling incredibly vulnerable asking people that I knew uh, to invest. And it was actually um, my co-founder, Stephen, who came up with quite a good strategy, which was, well, if we can ask them to either invest or if they don't want to or can't um, recommend someone who might be able to, then that sort of that sort of eased some of that pressure. But and that that turned out to work really well. But I I just remember it just feeling very, oh my God, our business plan is online, we're raising money. People are going to be able to see if we fail or whether we succeed. And and yeah, like, you know, people were people, people who love me dearly, you know, like friends and family, were a little bit awkward around me. You know, they didn't, they were like, oh, it's kind of like, you know, it's not really you know and you'll sort of see you'll be melt you'll be met with a a healthy amount of skepticism in the early days from loved ones and it's coming from a place where they care about you you know where my dad is like come on love do you really want to be doing this Mm -hmm. um you know why why take on the the stress and um I remember saying back to him well you had your own business and y- you can answer that question yourself and, and it was interesting because he was like yeah but I never wanted this for you you know I never wanted the stress for you I wanted you to have like an easy an easy life and I was like well there you go you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> you set the example there and um, my mum ran her run her run her own business too so you know friends and family will definitely be you know will be a little bit worried about you to begin with. But as time goes on, you know, they'll be your biggest supporters and your biggest cheerleaders. And especially as you start to build out your team and, you know, you have to be a positive, uh, galvanizing and, and energetic force um, for your team as much as is possible. In those moments that feel really, you know, low and tough, uh, it's your friends and family that you can, you can go, you can count on. Uh, to help you through it so yeah Uh, I love that answer
0: like I mean let's roll with that a bit more because I think you know being a a team again it's one of those things where when you don't have a team you you kind of are thinking about the day when you do and what kind of boss you're going to be etc etc and I think something like Silk Fred you know a million customers that's huge and it's such a big responsibility and there's so many challenges I think that just kind of it's so easy to overlook when you're the customer say um just looking in um but there's so many challenges scaling a business to that level. And, you know, growing a team, um, if I look back on all the interviews I've done, is one of the biggest challenges that crop up being that manager and kind of delegating. And also, I suppose, transitioning from, you know, you, you wearing all of those hats to suddenly not just not just um, delegating but also then having the responsibility of looking after those team members as well. So how have you found the process you know growing from a small team just a few people to the team that you've got now?
1: Growing a team is one of the most challenging things that um, as a founder or co-founder um, you will ever do. and it's because you can't I cannot under I cannot you know overstate this enough. You know, having the right people makes all the difference and, you know, keeping your culture together in the in the early days. It was it wasn't necessarily easier um, to get the right people. It was more that we were just so focused on you know, each person that came into the business, you know, we really, we thought about it because it was such a, it was such a big decision to make, to add to payroll, you know, like even one or two people back then. So we put a lot of focus on it. And also when you're at the beginning of your journey, like everything is very exciting and you're going through all these steps together, you know, when it was, we would move off space, we would all, you know, pack up the office together and move the desks together. And I remember one time, like going and getting pizza with the team and really feeling like we were, you know, this sort of unstoppable, friendly, all in it together, a team of people. And then, you know, as you get bigger, you know, people who come into your company, like they don't, you know, they've not been there through those milestones. And it doesn't mean that they're not as, as good or as powerful. It, it's more that, they just see your business differently. So I think one of the big mistakes that we made was we, we felt like we got it so right, let's call it, going up to the first 25 people. And even up to the first 35, it was really about, I'd say, sort of 45 to 80 was a lot of growing pains you know we didn't we didn't put enough into um inducting people into the team so you know we we threw people in at the deep end um we put you know pressure on people we didn't we didn't spend time with them um getting them you know up to speed with our company values and 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 for the most part you know the environment was great you know because we were still on this sort of rocket ship um journey so there were lots of exciting things happen, happening and we always had like really fun socials but all these things that you read about in business books like defining your mission defining your values you know these aren't super important to have from day one but at the point at which you start bringing people in let's call it outside the founding family the people you know the our founding our team members who were with us from the beginning you know they'll forget they'll, they'll forgive us a lot of um mistakes they're, they're very tolerant um of me in particular <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. whereas you know you have to you have to you know it, it becomes almost like a full-time job like you know making sure that you know the culture and setting and the tone is right and I, I remember it got to a point about you know where Two years ago, um, we had to, you know, spend an entire day with the team, um, talking them through our company values. And I remember feeling almost like this outer body of experience, like standing up in front of the team and being like, "These are our values, and this is what we care about, and this is why these things are important to us." And just being like, "Who are you? Like, you're not like this like y value person." But actually, it, 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 you know, it was incredibly important to do that. And it took it took me, um, my co founder and the team leaders maybe like six months to really say, right, what are we all about? And, you know, so these things become increasingly important as your team grows because people who come to the party a little bit later, they need to be connected and plugged in, Mm. you know, to that really strong um, center that, you know, that that you've built. I think other things that, you know, we got wrong as well, you know, we've always been a big fan of homegrown talent, you know, spotting bright, hardworking people and really letting them run with things and um, nurturing them and opening doors for them. And sometimes you can bring in people from like big companies with lots of experience and you think, okay, these people are going to be the solutions to all our problems. Sometimes it works out really well, but actually we found for the most part, and maybe this is just a stage of the journey that we're in now, that it hasn't worked so well, because sometimes people who come from, you know, really big companies, and really uh, big teams and lots of resource, sometimes you don't know whether they made the company or the company made them. Mm. And, um, and sometimes they come in and they want, you know, they struggle with the spotlight just being on them. And there's no resource, there's no team to hide behind, like, it's you and your ability. And, it's that simple and i think that that you know sometimes even culturally people from those those more sort of established and corporate backgrounds they they really struggle with the sort of scrappiness and reactiveness um of a of a startup but over time you know you, you kind of find your balance where it's a bit of both because you can't be slapdash forever especially when you know you've got over a hundred team members and you have that many customers and brands you know you now we have to be a little bit more careful um, yeah. and planned with our decision making, which you know is kind of bittersweet. But it, it's about you know that's what growing up does. And in terms of the delegating, you know, I won't pretend that I did everything in the business, but the things that I did do from the beginning, you know, were really hard to let go of because mm. um, they were my favorite part of the of the job. Like but, what? Like um, working with the brands really closely. I'm still really heavily involved with product in terms of the website and, you know, the the customer journeys. And that's something that's really interesting to me. But I know that I'm going to have to hand that off at some point soon because it's, you know, anything that becomes really, really important to the business, it needs someone's full time attention on it, which if you're... If you're a, a co-founder um, and you're growing the business, then you're not going to be able to give you full time because you have to be everywhere when it's needed. Mm. So yeah, one of the one of the sad things is that you have to let go of the things that you really love doing. But one of the be- best things about it is that if you're someone who always loves variety and adapting to new challenges, then you always get to work on something something new, uh, which is which for me yeah, outweighs um, having to let go of the the areas of the business that i'm really passionate about i remember someone once said to me like you know you're never happy when you're comfortable Mm. and and to some and to some extent it's it doesn't mean that i enjoy being stressed i don't (laughs) but (laughs) it's a very powerful motivator for me um feeling like we're under threat or there's a challenge or there's a competitor to beat or um we have to solve this problem you know there's there's always this sort of you know this this thing this like this, you're just lurching forward to to conquer the next thing mm. and it's always that, 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 that just feeling like you know it's never gonna it's never good enough and you need to keep going. and if you don't keep going, you know it's all gonna fall apart. Mm. And I think I think that's a big that, that's, that, that's definitely a, it, it's when I do what I think is like my best work.
0: just popping on here with a quick reminder that Tide Business Current Accounts happens to be the only place in the UK where you can register a limited company and open a business account in one process for free. For more information and to get started, please do feel free to visit www.tide.co forward slash start or follow the link in this episode's show notes. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned competitors there. How closely do you keep an eye on them? Because you know the f- online fashion retail world now is saturated. I mean, or at least there's so many. You know, there's some big platforms out there that compete with Silk Fred. So, what's your kind of thought process around them, and how has that evolved since the beginning, as well as new entrants to the market have emerged?
1: yeah this is really um this, this this is a really really good question in the beginning when we first launched about six months in about four other companies launched at the same time sort of doing similar ish things different sort of spins on it but more or less the same and I was just devastated I thought this is n- oh, we are screwed now everyone's had the same idea at the same time bloody hell like what a nightmare and I was, and, and it would eat me up, you know, it would really, really bother me. And today, none of those companies are still there, but we are. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that is the differentiator is it's not about being the brightest or having the most amount of money, though money does help. Um, <laughs> yeah, just a help. bit. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that it's not relevant because it is, but it, you know, resilience and to keep going when no one else would, or sometimes most people would say it doesn't even make sense to. <laughs> um, I think is the is the reason why we're still here. And you know, competition is a is an ongoing thing, but it's important to keep perspective. You know, we are in a market that is growing as we're growing. And if I think about you know, how much of the market share that Silk Fred has you know we've got tons and tons of room to grow as does everybody else which is great and also that's good for the customer because the customer has more choice and the more the more dominating online becomes and the more people who previously were too frightened to shop online or didn't quite trust it will start get gaining confidence which is good because that means more customers fantastic and in terms of competition like look you've got to keep an eye on what people are doing but really if you focus on, you know, having the best proposition to your stakeholders, your customers, and in our case, also our brands, that is the thing to focus on, you know? I mean, even, even today, a competitor of ours, and I won't name them, has, you know, and they're, I think they're a little bit bigger than us, have like, you know, ripped off all our strap lines, you know, literally on their homepage, they've got like what we've said our strap line is from day one. And you're a bit like, come on, like write your own copy at least because you know know, and it's frustrating as a a co-founder because you you know we're not looking at anybody else and going oh that looks good let's copy that you know we look at the people and go well that's interesting oh okay like but you know we always put our own spin on it we're always trying to be unique we're always trying to just do the thing that we think makes the most amount of sense and yeah it's infuriating when you see someone has just looked at what you're doing and going yeah let's just like copy it completely
0: yeah, yeah. And there's um, a really funny veronica dearly quote that she did and it's um you know the imitation is the biggest form of flattery she's crossed flattery out and she's put imitation is the biggest form of being a dick and it's so true it's just like you have to kind of be like yeah no you know imitation's the biggest form of flattery like we're really we are flattered blah blah it means we're doing well but also it's really annoying so stop it
1: I mean it's the biggest form of flattery when you're in senior school and your mate copies your outfit and you show up to the disco at the same (laughs) thing when it's a business it's no like you're coming after me yeah yeah back off this was a problem um but yes, I, but, I, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, customers aren't stupid, you know, and, and, and I honestly believe if you create the best proposition and put in the defenses that you need to put in, then, you know, then ultimately, it's always going to challenge you to be better. So I would, I would always advise keep an eye on it. But don't let it wind you up too much, because I burn loads of energy in the early days, like obsessing over what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And they're not even there anymore. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Love that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to I want to go a few steps back you said two years ago you had to do that presentation to the whole team about your core values and I had a little stalk on Instagram as you do and noticed obviously your two twins turned two this weekend so that means you were heavily pregnant at the time of doing that how have you I just, I just I
1: just had them just had them
0: oh my gosh <laughs> yeah so that's I mean that's crazy amounts of pressure when you think about it if if your business really you know you're a new mum which is an overwhelming chapter I'm speaking on behalf I don't know myself but from listening to happy mum happy baby podcast uh, I can imagine <laughs> it's, it's a overwhelming you know chapter in any any woman's life that with the pressure of that period in the business's life where you know you really did need to kind of mix things up a bit how have you handled that I don't uh, sometimes you know juggle is sometimes not a phrase that someone's like I know but you know that responsibility of trying to do a good job with both
1: I know exactly what you mean and I think that you know the first thing is having good people alongside you and having a good team you know my co-founders you know, just being incredibly supportive. Our investors, I remember one of them, I was so nervous to tell because they're one of our institutional investors. So let's call it like a bit more corporate and quite serious. And I remember he said to me- Sorry to interrupt, uh, but when did they come on board? Uh, they came on board in 2017. Okay. I, think, I think it was early 2017. And I remember being very nervous because also like they're all they're all guys as well um you know and you don't really know too much about their family setups and if they're very traditionally minded or more progressive I, you, you know I I didn't know so I was quite nervous about telling them and and what one of them said to me was really great and he said you know this is a good thing for you Emma he said this is going to force you to let go of all of the things that you shouldn't be doing and and it was and, and he was right and for first of all you know, they were incredibly supportive, as were my co-founders and my team. And and everyone everyone rallied around me um, during that time, you know, like picking up whatever bits of slack were, were there. And that was great. And I felt um, very grateful for, you know, everything they did for me during that time. Um, I think, though, what, what I would say about, you know, the, the juggling thing is that, first of all, when I was pregnant, when I became pregnant and since then, it's been such a power, not like I I was I needed anything to motivate me before, but in terms of distilling my focus and giving me a lot of clarity, becoming a mother really lit a fire. Um, that, you know, has felt like, you know, this is something that, you know, I want them to be proud of me. You know, I want to be able to give them all the opportunities. Uh, that I can. And also just, you know, show them, you know, that, you know, if you, if you want to do something like this and you can do it. So, you know, I think that it's been a very powerful source of motivation for me. And in terms of the juggle, one of the, one of the things that I think is important is to just be fully present wherever you are. And that's what I did. If I'm, if I'm working and I'm with the team um, and I'm at the office and I'm fully present there, like I'm not beating myself up that, you know, I'm not hanging out with the girls and same when I'm at home you know when they're you know during their waking hours like I try and give all my attention and love to them and you know sometimes you get the balance wrong uh one way or the other but you know you have to just like anything in life you have to you have to calibrate every so often so I think I think everyone finds their own rhythm but having a supportive partner also helps like my husband's great you know he's he took months off um for paternity leave, which was great, and it's very fifty fifty, if not more skewed towards him, um, that whole sort of concept of it takes a village to raise a child, I think when you're running a business, you know that's true, it's you, but it's also you know your team behind you supporting you through that, mm-hmm. and also your home set up and your friends yeah. but yeah, I mean it's been it's it's you know it's almost certainly like the best thing I ever did
0: yeah. That's amazing. I love that. And they're so cute. (laughs) So, so cute. In terms of, I'm very aware that, um, you know, we've just, I say we've just as if we've come out of it. We're in the midst of a pandemic. And like we touched upon at the very start of this chat, retail fashion has been hit, you know, like a silk thread, you go on there and, you know, the you go on there for wedding outfits or an outfit to go out with the girls, et cetera, et cetera. We're in lockdown and we haven't been able to do that. So I did run a mini series specifically focused on this, but I'm trying to go steer back to what she can. She did, you know, focus on the whole, whole story, but we can't not touch upon this. So how did COVID impact Silk Fred and, you know, how has that evolved over, I guess, the past, what, two and a half months? God, I'm so bad at maths. Where were we? March, April, May. We've just started June. Three months.
1: Yeah, you know, this has been a big whack um, to our entire industry, um, online and bricks and mortar. When we closed our office about a week before the official lockdown, it honestly felt like the government weren't really moving very quickly and, you know, people were starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable getting on the tube and stuff. So we just shut the office, which was quite emotional actually locking it up because it's definitely a, you know, it's definitely a very buzzy, energetic place. And like, I really love being in the office. So I I was quite sad um, that we had to lock it up, but team safety more important. When the official lockdown came in, you know, sales just really plummeted. And it was really scary to see numbers that, we might have celebrated back in 2015 but now we're a business with you know over 100 people and that's 100 families and all the can you
0: give a rough estimate of what those numbers look like not to you know you don't have to go into detail but how much of a fall are we talking
1: oh like 80 90 percent like it felt like going to it felt like we were going to zero and it might stay there and that was really difficult because you know we talked at the beginning about our ecosystem. And, I, you know, and we felt that um, quite painfully, you know, like, what about our brands? What about our team? You know, the last 10 years of everyone's lives, like might, you know, might be nothing. Because at that point, we didn't know whether this was going to be a couple of months of disruption or the next two years, you know, there wasn't really any clarity coming from government or anywhere else that, you know, made us feel like, this would be a short-term situation. So fortunately, where we are now is that the sales have been recovering really well since the beginning of uh, sort of the midpoint in April. And we're pretty much back to where we were. But, you know, it's definitely been a very testing, testing period. But, you know, going back to having the right team You know, I can't say enough good things about how our team have handled this situation. Did you have to furlough them? Yeah, we furloughed a small portion of the team and we've been keeping in touch with them throughout the whole time and I'm hoping that we can bring them back pretty soon. And yeah, you know, everyone's just been brilliant. You know, like people have worked really hard. They've uh, not sat in the garden in their sun. They've like, you know, ground out to get us back to where we are. And, you know, in some ways it's been... It's been quite good because it was my it was it was my co-founder who said um, Stephen who said that you know what we should be doing right now is not focusing on um, high energy low low impact just tweaking you know like loads of people at the beginning of this were running around like discounting like crazy live streaming yoga like baking banana bread recipes like all this stuff and we were like, like let's just let's work on the things that are going to have the most amount of impact and what is going to have the most amount of impact is first of all keeping engaged with our customers like let's ask them what they want to hear from us rather than assume and let's make sure that we're calibrating based on that so we've stayed really close to that. And, um, and then also, um, just making sure that, you know, we were doing the stuff that, you know, made us the most amount of money. And we also turned inwards to work on infrastructure projects, things that, you know, during this time of year, because it is wedding season, um, we'd never get time to look at. You know, there's things that we always say we're going to get done and we never get done because there's no time. So, you know, it, in, in some ways, whilst we wouldn't wish for it to happen again, lots of good things have come out of it. And in terms of, yeah, the wedding dress season, yeah, I mean, you know, really regretting all those bridesmaids dresses in the warehouse right now. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, next year's like,
0: brides are going to be so grateful, though, because they're going to get a good little sale, I imagine.
1: <laughs> next year's brides will be happy. But also the fact that we've got 800 brands. What's been really cool is that some of the brands that wouldn't normally have performed so well during this time of year gotten a lot of attention like brands that have sold hoodies tie-dye slightly more casual wear so it's been really great to see some of those brands sort of flourish and it's good that you know the way that we're set up we're quite we're quite flexible and we can we can skew the marketing in different directions Mm -hmm. so that's been you know whilst it's not been a fun situation we've always been quite well positioned to come out of it stronger and you know and that's what we said to the team at the beginning you know if we get through this we're going to be a much more stronger and resilient business for it, and yeah, it you know we're feeling really confident right now when it doesn't feel like we're going to go backwards from this point touch words, yeah,
0: yeah I've touched <laughs> it as well um no, that's amazing, and I just think like hats off to you, I think it's one of those things where this in hindsight it's always easy to look back on, but there's something I think even at the beginning where no matter how scary there was like an underlying feeling that businesses are yeah going to come out stronger there'll be a way to there'll be a way to adapt and it goes back to that resilience doesn't it it's just what it's taught everyone about themselves about you know being nimble and I guess even if it does go down again you know and your team know that you've come through it once you can do it again if that makes sense.
1: No that's definitely right you know Silk Fred has been as I said you know we, we we spent The first year and a half of the business, you know, really struggling like to get sales, really struggling to get it off the ground, like trying and testing lots of different things. But, you know, that was when we were a super small team. Let's call it like three or four people since we've been growing. That's all the team I've ever seen is growth you know prosecco a bottle of prosecco after a bottle of prosecco celebrating big milestones like yay we did this yay we did this, we did this. And, you know all the challenges that we've had and there's definitely been some very difficult ones have all been about growing pains whereas no one in our company myself included has really been through um a downturn so you know it, being in that position and what that feels like you know as you said like i think i think you know it has been a learning experience mm. uh, just thinking yeah. very very positively as I said we wouldn't want it to happen again
0: no 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 but no, no, that's the, yeah no, no, absolutely and I um, I know I know you wouldn't it's more just yeah it's, it's I guess always going to I think it's etched itself into all of us really like there's like a kind of a memory there that we're all gonna remember and um, I don't know it's something to fall back on I guess in any kind of challenge that you know if you got through that that's that's pretty (laughs) amazing rounding up then i'm conscious of time you know given the number of various challenges the growing pains um you've become a mum throughout this journey etc etc two it's questions twofold what does downtime look like for you in terms of switching off how are you looking after yourself throughout all of this and second half the question what has the past nine years taught you about yourself
1: since launching this business um, okay, so to answer the first part of your question, well, so I'll start with the second, I'll second start with the second part because that's maybe a little bit easier in terms of what it's taught me about myself. Oh, wait, sorry, can you remind me of the first part of the question again?
0: The first part was like, um, how do you switch off that, that kind
1: of thing? <laughs> yeah, see, this is the one I never think about, I no, just can um, <laughs> How do I switch off? You know, as I said, when I'm not working, um, what time I have, I try and be with my family as much as possible i'm really enjoying you know seeing um the girls like turn from babies into little people and seeing their personalities develop and them learning new things and trying to spend as much time um with my partner victor as i can and if there's time left over i might try and see some friends but there isn't that much time left over um but I'm not complaining in terms of what I like to do for me like I love to read I really really like to read so I try and do that when I can and I also love podcasts Mm -hmm. so um you know now you know it's now the weather's so nice you know in the evening it's quite nice to go out for a quick half hour hour walk and just listen listen to a podcast and that 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 you know I, I find that you know I get lots of new ideas as well um when I do that and then in terms of you know what I've learned about myself in the last nine and a half years I guess just like a crash course in vulnerability resilience and confidence and I'm talking about going from no confidence to having too much confidence which is almost worse Actually, is worse. 100% worse. <laughs> constant, yeah, constant, constant lessons in humility. You know, every time you feel like you're on top of it, there's always something to remind you that you're not quite there yet and everything is a work in progress. And in terms of the resilience, like, you know, yeah, um, unbelievable the things that you don't think you're going to be able to get through. And you do, and you do. And that's not specific to me. I think anyone can do that. It's really just about again like keep going when you don't feel like you want to but if you're like um me and and my team um and my co-founders as well like you know it's it's very much about you know we always felt like we had to do this mm. and if we didn't do it then it wouldn't get done and if we could do it and we could be the best at it then that would be a really really good thing and you know that's certainly been a very powerful and motivating thing throughout the whole journey and yeah you know you're constantly you know you're constantly learning throughout all of it as well there's never a point where you feel like right now I know everything yeah now I've made it (laughs) and now I know and now I know exactly um what to do um so I'd say I'd say I'd say yeah definitely um a lot about vulnerability it's not a bad thing and showing it's not a bad thing either um and I think also just being as honest as you can throughout it and that that's that's not just to other people that's to, that's to yourself as well
0: yeah, yeah, yeah no that's amazing was that a bird
1: yeah, yeah. Sorry about
0: no that. no not at all <laughs> um okay to end then um I always think it's so funny like I'm normally so particular about sound when um pre-COVID, but like there's the amount of background noise in these Zoom recordings. I always just find it so funny, like what crops up. I always end with some statements, Emma. So um if it's okay with you, I'll start and I'd like you to finish please. Number one, being my own boss means.
1: Uh helping everybody else.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh number two, when it's not quite going to plan, my advice would be to
1: take a step back. Um pick up the phone to a mentor someone you trust and talk it through with somebody don't sit there don't sit there letting it eat your brain out
0: yeah yeah, definitely did your mentors come along the way did you know them beforehand like how did you go about getting them
1: or meeting them yeah just along the way like um you know if even if I like read an article about somebody and said oh they have a really interesting perspective like I wonder if I reach out they'll help and I find that actually like. You know most people who have been through the journey that you know that we're on you know they do want to help and they're they're and, and they're excited to help so i would I would definitely say don't be afraid of reaching out to people like even my old boss is someone that I've reached out to every now and again Um yeah. tips and advice so yeah i think I think that's re- i think I think it's important to have to have mentors definitely
0: yeah, love that. if I could go back to day one of my business, I'd tell myself
1: don't wait until everything is perfect um just get started it doesn't matter if it's a little bit rough
0: if i had to describe myself as a businesswoman, i'd say that i am
1: a work in progress
0: (laughs) i love that that's so succinct normally that throws so many people but i really like that um and very lastly emma i want my legacy to be
1: that oh that is a tough question I'd want my legacy to be that, and I've said this to um, people on our team before as well, that people who work came and worked at SilkFred. That during their time, they did their best work with us. And also, you know, I'd like my legacy to be that hundreds, if not thousands, of businesses um, got started, got built, and got grown on SilkFred. Um, and that was because of what we built and um, and what we built together as well. The brands were a big part of that too. So I guess, you know, going back to the concept of an ecosystem that, yeah, I think, I think we'd want our legacy to be, to be just that really, the community keeps thriving and growing and, and yeah, just getting better and better
0: amazing thank you so much I feel like I needed that it's the best way to start a Monday morning I feel super inspired (laughs) thank you
1: oh thank you for having me uh this is my first podcast as well so is it oh there you go hopefully I did a good job you
0: did honestly I was that I can't you said at the beginning that you didn't think you'd gonna be um succinct and I just feel like all of those answers I've just been sat here just in awe so yeah thank you Thank you so much for listening to that episode. If you have a minute to spare and enjoyed it, of course, it would mean so much to me if you could please rate the podcast below or leave a review if you fancy being extra kind, as apparently it helps to give the series a little boost and helps other female founders and aspiring business owners to find it. For now, though, enjoy the rest of your day and please do look out for next week's episode.